can you create a great environment for problem solving with your team? Wouldn't it be great if you could also create a great problem solving environment for your children? Our guest today is a quality guy who is always wearing a black belt and has a passion for helping others build their taller spaceships. He has delivered two TED Talks, How to Teach Kids Better Problem Solving and The Cure for Laser Leadership. He owns several businesses, Protean Quality Systems, Successful Storytelling, and Top 5 Coaching. What does all of this mean? Let's talk to Michael Arnold to find out. This is a Touchstone Publishers presentation, your trusted source of leadership knowledge. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, in case you're just now joining, and I doesn't matter, I always say good morning, period. It just makes life easier, okay? I say good morning, it could be dead or night, and you hear me say good morning. I want to welcome our great guest today, Michael. Thank you for hanging out with us. I like the, I like your title, The Michael Arnold. I like that a lot, so that's powerful. You gave a great, powerful talk, but I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us today. Hey, no problem. I, I do The Michael Arnold is... Um, there's actually another Michael Arnold that has a website and uh, does coaching and speaking, and but I'm the Michael Arnold, so, well, so I yeah. to clarify. Who cares about the <laughs> fake Michael Arnold to <laughs> the Michael Arnold? Uh, we, a lot of ground to cover. I'd like to cover. Um, you know, of course, I kind of lay out what I want to do, but I don't know what I'm going to do. So I yeah. do have one question that I set up that I want to do, and that's going to be simply this. Tell us about something that's unique powerful, purposeful that you do either with your TEDx talk for yourself or for your organization? What's powerful, what's unique that people need to know about so they can get a little better understanding about those three things? Well, um, the thing I do is I help people solve their problems and I teach people to solve their problems. So I, I like to say that I I don't help people with their problems. I'd like to teach them to fish. Mm. And I do that using statistics. So I think that's the powerful thing. And it's one of the things I talked about in my talk is, you know, we have so much data. Um, the CEO of Google said, you know, we create in two days the same amount of data that we had for the last 10,000 years of human history. So, you know, using data to be able to answer questions, solve problems and come up with solutions is what I do. And that's very, very powerful. Well, and that's that is powerful because I like what you the just takes two days to get that information, create that much information. And that's what we did throughout all the time. And then like every two days we do that again. Yep. And you know, the, the unique thing about that is I've I've worked um, in corporate America and the the amount of data that corporations collect now, it's too much. They 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 can't manage it. And, you know, AI will help with that, but people don't even know how to use AI yet. And uh, once well, they the learn, that's going to become even more powerful. That's the truth. I just, uh, I can just almost testify to what you're saying because I just got involved with an AI company mm -hmm. and I have no idea what to talk about and <laughs> what they're doing. Is it too much data? Um, to be useful? I mean, is it getting in the way? Uh, it can. I, the big problem that uh, I was dealing with uh, on a, uh, working on problems was you get a lot of free text. So, you know, if you, you have free text, people can put whatever they want into uh, that box and, you know, they can misspell it. They can say slang words and contractions. And, you know, when you're doing searches for something, if you aren't searching for the right thing, you get a lot of uh, data that it's just useless uh, without really understanding what's there. And you have to have someone smart enough to look at the data to be able to analyze that. So, okay. so I want to pull that apart, but I'll, before we get there, I want to ask you one of the questions a little bit different. Your journey to your TEDx, you've done two, but yeah. when you first decided, okay, I want to talk about this, how did you decide I want to talk about this subject and what was that like to get it to that TEDx talk? Well, it's kind of funny. I, um, I was working at a company and the company, it, it was a great place to work. And it's really the, the whole kind of subject of my second TEDx talk. And it was just a, a great place to work. And then it became a horrible place to work. 
and it started turning me into a not a nice person. And so I really tried to find something outside of work that um, was a was a passion and could help me do something that made me not just do work. You know, I'd, I'd work 16, 10, 12, 16 hour days, come home, eat dinner, break out my laptop and work even more and then go to bed and start over and do that again. And um, when, when I was doing that, I, I started reading about leadership because it was a leadership problem that we had. Um, and I started studying leadership. I met with a leadership coach and uh, she said, you know, Michael, you know, you're, you have passion, you have great ideas, you need to write a book, you need to do a TEDx talk. And I'm like, really, me? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you. And I'm like, okay, so I'm still working on the book, but uh, I was like, well, you know, I'm gonna do a TEDx talk. And uh, I signed up for our local TEDx. Uh, I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and TEDx Greenville just is amazing. They've been doing it for, I think, 12, 13 years now. Wow. And uh, so, Basically, when you look at it, I think I was year number nine. So their, their quality, they've, they've learned how to do it correctly. So the quality was amazing. And uh, they had uh, an email. I signed up for the email. And the first email I got was an open mic night. And I'm like, well, there's my chance, you know. And uh, so I, I asked my wife, I was like, you know, what, what should I talk about? And she goes, well, what, are the, what do you talk about all the time? And, and it, I knew it was going to be something around problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I had two boys that uh, are now working. One's an engineer and one's working to be an engineer. My wife and I are engineers. So, you know, when I looked at it and thought about problem solving, you know, I realized that we weren't teaching kids the same problem solving that I was teaching kids. And my, my youngest son kind of helped me because he asked me one day, Papa, what is it you do? And I tried to explain it. He had no clue what complex problem solving was and uh, or statistics. So for him to not know that, and he was in middle school at that time, that, that was shocking to me. So from that, that standpoint, I was like, you know, we need to teach kids better problem solving. And that that's kind of my topic. Um, luckily, I had lots of stories talking about my kids and some of yeah. the things. Yeah. And uh, I gave my gave my speech. They loved my speech, loved my story. And um, they said the top three people get to be on uh, the TED stage. And I was not one of the top three. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I tried. And then they came and said, you know, we're going to put you in the nomination process because you were number four. Oh, OK. OK. And like, oh, great. And uh, the number one person, she changed her topic. They didn't like that. So she dropped out. And I don't know whether that's how I finally got onto the stage. Mm. Uh, I think one of the things is it was a professor that was a curator. So he really liked my topic because yeah, kids and had yeah. seen some of that. And uh, it happened. And I can still remember the day when I got the email. I just, it just was the coolest day. So. I have to ask you because I've never heard of a TED talk or was it yeah doing open mic night? Did you it, have to bring your own audience in? I got several questions about that because that's a good way to do it. But, well, yeah, and that's exactly the, the girl who won. She brought an audience. I mean, she she's uh, uh, has her own company, and everybody from her company was there, so she got the most votes that night. I brought my wife, and just poor planning on my part. <laughs> oh, yeah. So come on, be my back. Although I, I, I enjoyed having my wife there. Yeah. Good save. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got I got to cover it. But uh, yeah, it was a, a great experience. And just the, the whole journey was awesome. And uh, mm. the day of was just amazing. Um, and I learned I learned a bunch. I, I spoke with some amazing people. And I, I still keep in contact with them and uh, talk with them. So it, it's just a, an amazing organization. And, you know, I always have helped my uh, interns and co-ops at the different places I've worked um, with their resume and, and uh, trying to learn job skills, talking to them about where they want to go in their careers and kind of giving them some coaching advice. And one of them uh -huh. uh, knew I gave the TEDx talk. And so when Clemson University had their TED, TEDx event, she recommended me and uh, I, I came in, they were like, you know, what are you going to talk about? And I'm like, well, 
I'm going to talk about how we have to move away from command and control leadership, which is what really kind of ruined the organization that I, I was doing my complex problem solving on. And it also made it where if you don't have good leadership, it's hard to solve problems. And uh, so that's true of companies all over the world. So that was my second talk. And uh, they loved my topic, thought the students should hear that. And um, boom, I got two TEDx talks in two years, which is just an amazing blessing in life. It is, yeah, it's an amazing blessing. It's an amazing piece of power. Now, with that knowledge, is that what uh, we don't normally talk about this, but I just want to ask mm -hmm. with doing two TEDx's and doing the open mic, and um, is that what led you into coaching other TEDx speakers, or was it something else that said, hey, I can do this for other people, or just your success did that lead into it? Um, well, you know, I, I'm an engineer, and mm -hmm. what I learned as an engineer is if you need to learn something, um, you either find somebody else that can teach you or you read books about it. So I, I do a little bit of both, um, talk coach, coaches, things like that. But I've read, you know, every time I, I get a new topic, uh, I read a book. So I think I've read, gosh, probably 10 books on TEDx talks. Yeah. And uh, probably another 10, 20 books on uh, how to give speeches and, and add humor, things like that. And so next thing you knew, I had people coming to me and said, you know, how did you get a TEDx talk? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I did an open mic night and somebody nominated me. And they're like, oh, I can never do that. I can never get in front of somebody. And mm -hmm. uh, I was like, you know, what, what's your idea? And if they have a good idea, I'm like, well, you know, I'll help you work your idea. That's a great idea that you need to share. And uh, so for me, it's a passion helping other people find and share their passions. And so I've, I've been helping people and uh, then I had people, someone, you know, they, they asked that question that you don't know how to answer. And how much do you charge? I'm like, charge? I don't charge anything. It's like, oh, well, I should pay you for this. Okay. <laughs> charge. Uh, that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it grew into to coaching people. So, yeah. That, okay. That's great. That's great. I want to um, start pulling apart your TEDx a little bit because, okay, the idea of a TEDx talk, which everybody knows who's on this channel, is an idea worth sharing, okay? Yeah. So you get 18, I understand now it's 14 minutes to share an idea, but that's not anywhere near the your time period to kind of pull it apart and say, okay, this is what this can cause, this is what this can create. So I want to talk about that and spend the majority of our time there, but I want to ask you something that I hadn't really thought of until you said it, statistics. Mm -hmm. How are we using statistics these days? Because like you said, I mean, people, when if you're using AI and it's got to deal with people's slang and uh, everything else you're going to put into a fill in the blank kind of text box or something like that to figure out customer service levels, all that. To solve a problem, do you have a, I call it an Einstein level view of that problem? So it's like a sentence answer. <laughs> I mean, I know you probably, that's tough to do, but how does statistics play in problem solving? Well, what when you have so much data, I mean, say, um, you know, you want to you want to find out how many people have red hair in the United States. Okay. You can't count how many people have red hair in the United States, and depending on the day, you know, they could change it. You know, they could lose their hair like like I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, babies are born, so you 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 don't know how many people have red hair. Right. So the, the whole idea of statistics is you pull a sample from the population and it has to be statistically significant. So it has to be enough people that uh, you have minimal error and uh, risk of being wrong, but you basically pull that sample and you count how many people in that sample have red hair. And that's the power of statistics is then you can look and compare your sample to your population and see if uh, that actually works or not. And then that, that's the power of that. So when you have all of that data, uh, especially when you're solving a problem, uh, if you are if you see you have a problem and it's a big problem, it's actually much easier because you can pull a, a, a sample and normally find that. But like, you know, if, say you have a 1% problem. Well, I have to look at 100 parts to potentially find one bad piece. So do I need to look at, you know, hmm. 500 pieces to find 
five pieces or, or, or not. You, know, you, you just don't know. So that, that's where statistics and sampling comes in, in, into play when you're trying to solve problems and looking for those clues. And that, that's what I like. You know, it's, it's a detective. I'm Sherlock Holmes trying to find the, the root cause of the problem. And statistics is a powerful way to do that. So statistics will kind of point out to you to kind of say, okay, here's a group of 1,200 samples. Mm -hmm. And of that 1,200 samples, 100 of them for this. Yeah. And, and now you kind of know there's a problem to solve. Yeah. And a good example is uh, I, I've just recently worked on a problem. <clears throat> and uh, I, I like to think of things in distribution curves. So, you know, mm -hmm. the normal distribution curve is um, you got some good parts over here, some I'm sorry, staying yeah. the camera here. Got some good parts over here, some bad parts over here. And then you've got a, a bunch of good parts in the middle. So when you're looking for uh, the distribution curve of things, a lot of times you'll see this little curve over on the, on the end mm -hmm. that just doesn't fit into the rest of the data. And sometimes that's the clue of what is that special cause that's causing my problem. And that's what happened recently is there was a, a shift in the data so i saw one of those little bumps out on the out on the end and when i saw that i knew that i had a, a special cause that was out there and then digging deeper into the data i could see that those parts were related to a shift in the data so then i was i knew i was looking for mm. some way for the data to shift and uh, i started looking at the process and i saw that you know the parts could shift if this happened so i, I set up a gopro of all things and just watch the process and uh, lo and behold we we solved the issue and uh, had to determine what was causing it uh, but then when we did we were able to fix the problem and i mean it was one of those uh, i follow the 80 20 principle you know yeah uh, 20 20 percent of the the problems out there cause 80 percent of what actually is a problem yes and uh, so from that standpoint you know that ended up being one of those 2080 things you know when we fixed that issue 80 percent of the problems went away so just very powerful okay question back to about you okay. six sigma you you're a six sigma person lean six sigma not 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 so much lean uh you know lean and six sigma kind of get lumped together a lot too much yeah. lean is um uh, really service, yeah Toyota production system yeah. and the um, efficiency, you know, improving the efficiency of processes, things like that. Statist Six Sigma is the statistical problem solving side of that. So I, I do do Six Sigma. Uh, I started with a methodology methodology called Shannon. Uh, Shannon was invented by Dorian Shannon who actually was a peer of uh, Deming and Duran and some of those guys back mm -hmm. in the day. Okay. And, um, and Six Sigma, is, the, the rumor goes Six Sigma is based on uh, the stuff that Dorian was doing with his company. No, it's based on something Dimmy was doing. Come on. <laughs> we could have a good old debate about that one. Yeah. No, I, I asked that because when you said you used your GoPro mm -hmm. to, f to help isolate the problem, that's mm -hmm. a lean solution, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think that's an undervalued tool for problem solving, whether it's complex problem solving or not, you know, visualizing and watching something is very, very powerful. And, you know, if, if you have a big problem, you can watch it. If it's a small problem, you, you may not be able to do that because um, it may happen so infrequently. But I've seen very small problems where I, I've watched a process and I've seen that something doesn't look right in a particular station. And it doesn't happen very often. It'll make a bad, uh, bad part, but you can see that it's it's not right. And you know there was a, a press that came down and was pressing something in, and you could see that it just it was like doing this number. And every once in a while, it did this number and it created contamination in a part. And you know if you watch things, you, you'll see weird things happen, and those are clues. To, to what could happen. And then you do your testing to, to prove that or not. But you know, that's, that's something that I see also is I visualize problems. I, you know, um, they, they used to have a show called uh, psych and the yeah. guy 
come in and he'd see all these clues around the room. They'd like light up. I'm like, sometimes that that's how I feel. If I, if I come in and watch a process, I can see the things that they kind of light up and say, Ooh, that could be a problem. That could be a problem. And then you use statistics to prove it or not. Mm -hmm. So that's a good view of it. Mm -hmm. How do we start teaching our kindergartens? This? Our kindergartners this? Well, and that's actually what I'm working on is the curriculum for that. You know, the the first thing I like to do is do the things that kids already enjoy doing. So when when I think of preschoolers and kindergartners, you know, if uh, you look underneath their beds, you're going to find all the rocks and frogs and snails mm. they find out in the yard. And that's one of the things that I believe is important. Um, you need to be good at collecting data and it's good to collect things. And so, you know, I, I try to encourage kids to collect things, whether it's rocks, leaves, uh, hopefully they're not bringing snakes and frogs in the house, but you know, that collecting things and then understanding when they look at the things that they collect, what are the differences? You know, if I look at two rocks, no two rocks are alike, no two snowflakes are alike, no two leaves are alike. What's different about them? You know, different colors, different grain structures in the rocks. You know, one rock may have uh, some quartz in it. One may just be sand, you know, and, and understand the differences. And understanding and collecting and seeing differences will make you an amazing problem solver down the road. Because uh, like I said, I, I talk in distributions. And when you look at distributions, that's what you're looking at. You know, I'm looking at the parts on this side and this side. And what's different about those uh, parts, you know, is there something dimensionally, is there something visually? And a lot of times those differences are clues again, to what your problem is or is not. And once you are able to identify the problem, then you're able to start to begin to identify the solution, but you can always check that back against your problem solving skills to see, okay, that's the case. So you can get a little, um, five, six, seven year old who's collecting rocks. Mm -hmm. And start having them understand what the difference is between this white rock here and this uh, brown and gray rock here. Yep. And and helping them to, to visualize it. So, you know, if I go out in the driveway, all the rocks are going to look very similar because they're all gravel. But, you know, if I, I go over into the flower bed, you know, I get different rocks in the flower bed. And, you know, I, I can see those differences. And uh, then you can categorize them and teach them how to categorize the data. So they can see, you know, if I have a sample of 20 rocks, you know, I've, the most of them are going to be the white rocks that were in the gravel. Then I've got a couple quartz that were in my mom's flower bed that she told me not to touch, but I did anyways. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to admit that, but yeah. And then from there, you can start looking and saying, you know, this, this kind of, and maybe it's research. Nowadays, you can Google anything, right? Right, right. Google and see what the, the gravel's made out of, and you can Google and see what the, the white rocks are. And, and I think that's the thing is I want to teach kids to be lifelong learners. I've, I've been a lifelong learner all my life, I guess. But, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to always learn something more. You know, like I said, every time I want to learn something, I, I read a book. And uh, normally I'll read three, four, five, ten books on it. And then, then I feel like I know enough to be dangerous. Um, but, you know, that's I'm a lot more dangerous than other people who don't read at all. So from that standpoint, you know, I, I think that's the other thing I want to encourage kids to do is always be searching and trying to learn more. And, um, you know, kids, when they're young, you know, what do they ask? Why? 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 Yeah, why? And, you know, when do they stop asking why? When the parent gets tired of uh, tired of them doing it, but that's not when they really should stop asking why. They stop asking why once they get into schools. Oh, if if you look at statistics, they stop asking why when they get into schools. They might do it in kindergarten, but by first grade, second grade, third grade, they don't ask why anymore. And the reason why is their teachers tell them. Shh, you need to listen. listen. Here's the curriculum. I'll tell you what you need to know because you need to know this for this test and you need to know this and you need to know this. And they stop asking why because they're being told what they need to know. Now, is what they're being told enough for them to be able to do what they want to do in life? 
I think we need to encourage him to keep asking why. In your TED talk, you um, talked about some differences nationally. Um, you know how we prepare our students versus how some Asian countries and uh, Middle Eastern countries prepare their students. Yeah, tell us about that a little bit. Well, you know, um, I live in in the southeast of the United States, and sorry, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I'm only kidding. <laughs> Actually, I moved there from Indiana. I'm originally from Indiana, but um, you know, when you look at that area you see that the, the map that I showed in my TEDx talk, mm -hmm. it was white and a darker color meant that there were more people that had applied and gotten patents. In the area where I lived, it was all white. So you had kids and, you know, again, if you talk distribution, there's kids in that area that are smart enough to get patents. They just don't have the opportunities. And what, what the, uh, the article and research paper that I read, they called those lost Einsteins. And, you know, and I, I talk about it in my talk, I want us to find those lost Einsteins. There's some amazingly brilliant uh, kids in the Southeast and, and everywhere in the world. You know, um, if you look, there's not a lot of patents that come out of Africa, but you know, there's, there's smart kids in Africa. They're born, they're just not given the opportunity to, to, to get that. And, you know, that's true of around the world. So I think, I see that we're in the computer renaissance. You know, back uh, when the renaissance happened before, they, they had a plague and all the monks died. And when they died, um, that's when Gutenberg realized there, we were gonna run out of books. He started printing Bibles and everybody was able to have books. Where before, if the monk didn't write, a, write it down, you didn't know it, but now you could print books. So people had access to knowledge. You know, Da Vinci is a great example. He, He's mm. everything he get his hands on. And uh, he was a lifetime learner and he was a perfectionist to, to a fault, but he learned his entire life, no education. He taught everything to himself. And it's because he was during that time when books were available. We have the same thing now. Anybody with a smartphone can find any knowledge you want. So if you're encouraging kids to ask why, and encouraging them and showing them how to find that information on their cell phones or computers, they can learn all kinds of information. And that is, that is probably the most powerful thing happening right now. You're going to have kids that are, have never had the possibility of doing things in life from a, a patent. And they're going to be able to do that around the world because they're going to have access to that information. I think we're going to see a huge, um, renaissance from the access to computers. And uh, well, yeah. you think about Starlink and allowing the internet to be all over the world. That's that's a unique, amazing concept right there, I think. I wanted to ask you, though, a little bit deeper on that, though. When we're talking about not having the ability or the knowledge of creating patents, mm -hmm. and we look at different countries, well, Japan, for one, I think that was one of your comparisons to the United States. They don't create patents, do they? They do. Um, I think the, the, the thing that I really talked about in my talk was um, the different ways that they teach kids problem solving. Uh, in Japan, yes. it's very um, visually focused. Again, they, they talk about how they can uh, do a visual of their analysis. And uh, really, if you go back to lean, you know, they teach kids processes. So the, the process that they would follow to visualize their problem and solve the problem, and, and, and they teach them a, a process. And that's what I'd like us to do is teach a process. And, and in my opinion, uh, something like Six Sigma, like the Demaic process, where you define the problem, you figure out how you're going to measure it, figure out how you're going to analyze it, once you figure out uh, your root cause, how you improve it, and how you control it. I mean, that, that's a simple model that Six Sigma provides. And, you know, we teach kids how to solve the problems that we give them. You know, we, we say, here's, here's your math problem, solve it. And they either get it right or they get it wrong. And to me, I think it's good to give kids a problem that they have to define, figure out how they're going to measure it, and analyze it and solve it. 
And then if they get it wrong, that's okay. They, they learn from that. You know, we don't learn oh, anything from yeah. success. We only learn from our mistakes. Okay, you know, hold we, on. I'm gonna stop you there because every now and then I hear what I call a writable mo moment. Mm -hmm. And I want people to turn around and not tweet it, but write it down. I think that's a writable moment. We don't learn from our successes. We learn from our failures. Yeah. And, and some people don't, but. <laughs> some people don't, but children will if, yeah. you, if you don't penalize them. Right. And, and you know, that's the thing, I think, also that stops kids from learning more in school is that that right there. I think that's another key moment, you know, penalizing kids. And, you know, if they don't get the answer right, you know, they don't get a good grade. And, and I know as a parent, I spent time penalizing my kid because he didn't uh, get the grades that he was supposed to have. And I, I knew he was smart, but he wasn't being challenged. And when he wasn't being challenged, he'd get bored and he'd check get out. Out and check out. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that I learned as a parent, which is my next TEDx talk. Um, I think we need an organization like all of the, the lobbying groups that we have across the, the U.S., you know, the NRA and the ACLU, you know, they, they lobby for these laws and everything. Parents don't have that. You know, so if you really look at what parents have, they have PTO, PTA, which is more uh, there to support the, the kids, yeah. not necessarily to improve the education system. And I think there needs to be a, a national organization that parents sign up for when their kids join the school and, you know, they lobby and uh, donate money to so that they can lobby um, our U.S. government to improve education. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. using the same education system that we created over a hundred and some years ago. And today it's not doing what it needs to do. Well, I don't go down, down that divide, but I think that we don't do what we did a hundred years ago. Exactly. You know, we don't have gym, we don't have music, we don't have art in schools. Right. So just to start, but we won't go down this subject, uh, not, not too deeply anyway. Yes. Um, so just, I guess I'm a little bit confused then mm -hmm. on the process of saying, okay, I want, well, you're working on it though. Uh, the process of saying, okay, kindergarten, here's mm -hmm. how you problem solve. Yep. Or here's a better way for me to think about it. A parent is a leader. Mm -hmm. Leaders are parents. Okay. How do we create that safe environment for problem solving? Number one, I guess we don't penalize, but what else do we do to help kids and our team of direct reports, better problem solving skills? Well, one of the things that um, after I get them so that they're collecting and visualizing and categorizing their data, then I want to start giving them projects or problems that um, they need to overcome. You know, a, a good example is I, um, a friend of mine is a music teacher and every year she gives her students just a box full of junk and says, we're gonna have a concert with this box full of junk. Make some, figure out how you can make some instruments from this stuff. So they have to figure out how to take this box full of junk, turn it into musical instruments so that they can play them. Great analogy. Might be a um, paper towel tool tube and they, they've gotta learn how to play the drums or maybe they use it as a trumpet, whatever. And it makes them be creative and from there, overcome the, the problem of using junk to, to make music. And so that's what I think we need to do is just give them, give them something and tell them this is what we'd like for you to do, you know, and make them mash up. And I think uh, the other example I talked about, which goes back to what you were saying, you know, you take art students that are creating the storyboards. You've got English students that are creating the, the stories. And yes. you've got um, kids that are great with computers helping to program and turning this all into a video game. And, you know, when you get to middle school, that's what I'd like to see is give them, give them a project where they have to use art and science and music and, and put it all together. And I think, like you said, that's missing. We, we don't make those mashups. You know, you go to art class and you go to music class and you go to 
science class. You know, um, I think it's Finland. Finland kind of puts a lot of that stuff together, and yes. they're 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 now some the best education system in the world. Finland, you know, and and the U.S. is I think like 29th and dropping. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. And and you know, it's because again, I, I think we need to. I keep saying disrupt our education system, and uh, but there, there's no motivation for our politicians to do that because parents aren't organized to be able to do that. So that's my next TEDx talk. <laughs> that, is, that is an idea worth sharing because as collaboration is going to cause us to win. Yeah. Uh, competing and trying to beat the other countries and actually judging where, how we're 29th or 30th. If we want to get back toward the top, we got to start collaborating yeah. with each and, other. And yeah. And, and it's not teachers. I, I don't, I, I'm not a teacher basher. I, I think teachers have a passion, um, but I don't think we, you know, in business, I always say that we need to uh, um, make it easy for the operators to do the right thing. And that will make it where you have a quality part. If you oh, give the right yeah. tools, the right equipment, operators, want to do the right thing you know 99 percent of the time you always got that one guy that doesn't that doesn't but I mean, as a rule i think you're right in that that's where this applies to leaders in the workforce mm -hmm. we're just talking about your workforce but not just as a parent that's where this applies because 99 percent of the people want to do the job if you tell them what the rules are and what's expected of them then get out the way yeah. they'll problem solve it for you and and teachers are the same way i think if we yeah. if we let them teach the way they want to um, and, and some teachers do but you know they're they're probably a, the exception rather than the rule I think a lot of them you know they follow the rules but um, again you know if we took a sample of teachers you know which ones are successful and which ones are not and you know they, they talk about rewarding the successful teachers but to me if there's an, a successful teacher what we do is we understand what that successful teacher is doing and have them move into roles of showing other teachers what they're doing to be successful. Don't punish the other teachers. Let that teacher be the leader and say, you know, here's what I do with my students and, and share the ideas that work and, and then let teachers do it and not have to worry about tests and results. And that's how we problem solve. That's how we teach kids to problem solve. Exactly. Love that. I got to admit that it came together for me. I had it coming together in a different way, but right there, yeah. it just came together. The analogy was so perfect. The, the music, you know, here's a box of junk. Let's create a band. Yeah, that's problem solving. And and in high school, you know, there's a there's a it's a very short TEDx talk where a, a gentleman I can't think of his name, but he said that we need to move away from calculus to statistics being the top of the math pyramid. And, you know, I, I, I'm an engineer. I had to take three or four years of calculus, which is why I'm not an engineer. <laughs> two, 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 at least two years of, of calculus that I took. And I think I've used calculus once or twice in my 25 plus year career. But I use statistics and have used statistics almost now I use it every day before I was using it um, at least once or twice a week, but calculus I never use. So why are we not teaching statistics and making kids learn statistics in high school? And to me, you teach it to them all throughout high school. And, you know, it's important to understand statistics and how statistics can be used to lie. Yes. To yeah. sell. You know, you know, I, I 50 percent off sale today. Well, yeah, it's 50 percent off of, of the price that's the manufacturing price well yesterday you know that price was a dollar today you raised it to two dollars and you gave me 50 percent off it's still a dollar and it's still a lot and it expands so much further than that oh yeah yeah that's a perfect analogy for it there again 50 percent off of what exactly okay um i when you were talking about statistics earlier i was thinking about how we poll in elections mm -hmm. you know sample poll 1200 people Okay, yeah. well, is that really a large enough sample? Mm -hmm. Well, 2016 it proved not to be, but 2020 it proved to be. Yeah. So 
how does that work? I mean, well, and, and they, they always show it, you know, this person's three or 4% um, in, in the lead. Well, then you see that the error on their sample is yeah. 5%. five plus or minus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so you got at least a 5% error and they've got a 4% lead. They don't have a lead at all. I mean, no, technically, but that's what they advertise because they want to advertise who, who they want to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What, what, you know, so that's a good problem solving situation there. I think, you know, we got to, but you got to get the, the math right, uh, the statistics right. You got to get the sample audience right. You got to get all those things right. You got to get the problem right. So I fully now can think, okay, let's put this in kindergarten. Here, kids, it's snowing outside. Solve a problem for us to have a good day inside. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Small, small area. Um, okay. Let me ask you this. So I'm going to push this. I want to be really respectful of your time. And I see we're starting to get to that our time period, which it wasn't planned for, but I appreciate that. When you did your TED Talk, you, what, which one came first? Uh, the leadership one or um, the, you th I think you said. The, the problem-solving one. That was my first talk. Um, but again, like I said, I, I started with uh, my passion, which was problem-solving. And I'm a father, and uh, that's something that I, I value as being a father and, and raising my kids so that they're um, good, upstanding adults. <laughs> good, upstanding, problem-solving adults. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I ask that because I'm curious as to what are you doing right now that TED, the TED Talks caused you to do that continue to help people? I mean, I... I like this uh, complex problem solving training and coaching, mm -hmm. but that uh, I'm putting words in your mouth by accident there, but what are you doing right now to continue to help people in this area or that area? Well, one of the things I did is um, I've, I've been working in corporate America um, for most of my career. And this year I quit my job and mm. uh, started my own company. So I'd, I'd been doing uh, speaking and uh, training outside of work. And uh, now it, it's, it is my work. And, uh, you know, I, I help companies um, solve problems, which um, I've done as well in corporate America. But now I can help companies solve their biggest problems, where before I was helping my company solve their biggest problems. But after I solved so many problems, I was just solving little problems. And I, I enjoy solving big problems. And so that's what I do now. And then um, I, I'm also a big fan of wicked problems. So I study, you know, like climate change and plastic floating in the oceans. I, I, I love the, the idea of what can I do to, to solve those kind of problems. And uh, mm -hmm. then I also do training. I, I, I love teaching people how to fish when it comes to, to solving problems. And uh, when, you, when you look at your business, they always say, you know, figure out what problem you solve. And I'm like, I solved the biggest problem. And, and that's what I do. Figure, oh, okay, the biggest problem. But that is, by the way, I think now I connect that you solve the biggest problem within an organization, which oftentimes is people's ability to speak. And now you're solving them and say, no, you're going to do more than speak. You're going to go do a TEDx. Right. That, so, uh, so tell us briefly now, as a rule, but let's just break my own rule. Yeah. You're a TEDx trainer and coach right a lot of people get up if someone's out there listening and say well i would never really consider doing that uh, but maybe they connected how do they get a hold of you and i mean give give me the commercial how do yeah. they get a hold of you for your tedx training and coaching if they're interested in that at all um, a great place to start is um successfulstorytelling.com that's the the tedx speaking side so basically of my business i i help people um, define and shape their idea into a, a, with a story that they can share that other people will want to hear and understand. And from there, I help them find a TEDx. You know, when I've polled people, they don't know what they'd talk about. They don't know what their big idea would be. They are too afraid to get onto a stage and they have no idea 
how to even go about getting on a stage. So that's what I help people do. I help them find their great idea, find a story to share that idea. I help them craft their talk and then find a stage to share it on and overcome the, the simple things that you can do to not be afraid of sharing your ideas. And, and what I've discovered is people who have a passion about their big idea, they won't worry about being on a stage and sharing it. They're, they're so excited about it. They'll, they'll, they tell people all the time and it's just to help them understand that you're, you're just standing on a stage sharing your idea just like you always do. And, yeah, and, and that's what it is. That. And if they don't get to that stage and they have they just don't have enough passion, because it is not going to be as easy as getting two in a year. I mean, two in two years. That just yeah. that happens to the rare. It does. Um, Very rare. You're gonna. The one person said you got to get used to papering your bedroom wall or your office wall with the rejection notices. If you want yeah. you get a wall full of those, then you're about ready to get one. Yeah, and yeah. and you know a good example. Uh, one of the gentlemen that I talked to about TEDx, I think he was rejected 15 times before he finally did his first TEDx. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, and he gave up. He gave up after like nine or 10 times. And uh, then somebody said, you, you got to share this idea. And he went back and, and did it again and finally got a, got a talk. So I think that, that, that's the other thing is if you have an idea that's worth sharing, it'll it'll be out there. Yeah, it'll get there. It'll get there. So now you did a great job there. I'm gonna put you on the spot again. Okay. I want you to give us a commercial. Okay. About complex problem solving, your training and coaching. Just commercial time, ladies and gentlemen. Commercial time. Go ahead, Michael. Well, you know, one of the things I do is I help companies solve their biggest problems, but you know, I can't help every company solve their problems. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I also do is I teach complex problem solving. So I teach Six Sigma. I, I like to call it Six Sigma 2.0 because one of the things I incorporate into my training is when I teach a green belt class, I not only teach the, the statistics and problem solving tools, I teach teamwork. And then when I teach black belt training, I teach the statistics and I teach leadership because when you're a green belt, you're going to be on a team and not only do you have to have the tools you have to have the ability to work with a team when you're a black belt you're leading oh, the leader yeah you've got to be a leader and you have to understand the tools so to me that's what i've learned as a problem solver i could solve problems really well but if i couldn't be part of a team or lead a team to solve the problems we weren't going to do it so that's mm-hmm. one of the things i've done with my training is incorporated that into the into the training as well. Okay, how do people get a hold of you for that? And I will just say, personal experience with Six Sigma, mm-hmm. you would be surprised at how much it applies to a lot of things. Speaking, yeah. how much it applies to just a lot of things. But how do people get a hold of you for that level of training, problem solving? Uh, then I've got another website which they can use uh, my other website to get a hold of me for for anything I do, and it's themichaelarnold.com. So that's that's my main website, um, and I do uh, professional speaking as well. So I will come in and uh, share my TEDx and other ideas that I have, and uh, that's where they can talk to me about uh, the training and coaching side of my business as well. Or if they want me to come in and solve their problem, I can come and do that too. So I'm going to suggest that everybody take some time and go to themichael.com and... Um, themichaelarnold.com. Yeah, the, the, themichaelarnold.com. That will be in the show notes, so you can get to that as well in the show notes. Um, Let's do that. But here's my last set of questions for your hope. I always say this, but then I always say, oh, I want to do more than that. Uh, the, all, all your addresses and all those things would be in the, the notes. You can take a look at them. But here's the question I have for you. Okay. What question did I not ask you that I should have asked you? Why taller spaceships? Amen. Oh, that should have been the first question I asked you. Yeah. Why taller spaceships? Yeah, so my shirt says, if I get in a little closer, 
building your taller spaceship. Yes. And um, when I was a little kid, I was actually born in 1969, and I sat on my grandpa's knee, and I watched Neil Armstrong step onto the moon. Well, my grandfather passed away when I was nine months old, so I never met my grandfather, but my grandmothers told me uh, over and over that I, I sat on his knee and watched Neil Armstrong. So I, I can picture that moment when I see the black and white video, and I can smell his aqua velva, I can hear one small step for man, and I always have wanted to be an astronaut. And when I got to high school, you know, I studied astronomy, geology, and physics, and I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I found out I couldn't be an astronaut. And the, the maximum height was six foot one inches tall. I'm six four. And there's nothing I could do. You know, they say work hard and you can reach your dreams and goals. There was nothing I could do because I had a status quo problem. Six foot one was the, the maximum height. I couldn't be three inches shorter. So that's when I decided to become an engineer and build taller spaceships. And that's what I've been trying to do is uh, when somebody tells me this is the way we've always done it, you know, no. on. we're, we're going to change that. And that's well, what I've always been trying to do. I think I found it interesting that you talked about Elon Musk and um, SpaceX and uh, yeah. Richard Branson and what is his called Space Galactica or whatever it is. Yeah. But these guys, they're building stuff for you to fly in space, and I will be right there with you. And and Elon's Elon's on my side. I, I was told that uh, now astronauts can be six foot nine and fit onto the the spaceships that Elon Musk is making. And I'm sure that um, Richard Branson's taking care of me. The the seat that I'm going to have on uh, uh, Virgin Galact Galactic is, is going to be tall enough for me to sit on when I go to space. So I just have to come up with the $250,000 for a ticket. So <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. But that's going to be, that's great. So yeah, I can't believe I didn't ask that question. That was, I mean, that was a question that when I saw your TED talk, I was supposed to wait a minute, building a taller. <laughs> I can't believe I, I didn't ask that. No problem. I want to, I just absolutely want to say thank you for taking the time. Um, this is an important subject, the education of our kids and giving the freedom for our kids to grow and giving our freedom to the team to solve the problems. Um, but if you need help, you know where to go to themichaelarnold.com and get a hold of there and go from there. I think you think everybody will find that worthwhile. So thank you very, very much for um, hanging out with us today. I cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate it. And no problem. I enjoyed it. <laughs>